Specialty Stories, session number 181. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week, where I get to have amazing conversations with physicians to talk about their specialty. And this week, we have a great guest to talk about his specialty that he kind of found luckily and by happenstance, and one that he has fallen in love with and will hopefully change the world for his patients. We're talking to Dr. Robert Weinrieb, a physician who specializes in transplant psychiatry. It's a very interesting subspecialty within the world of psychiatry. We've had a perinatal psychiatrist on before, and now talking to Dr. Weinrieb about transplant psychiatry. Dr. Weinrieb is also the program director for the Consultation Liaison Psychiatry Fellowship, has lots of experience helping students and fellows and residents end up in the careers of their dreams. We start the conversation by how Dr. Winery first became interested in psychiatry and then transplant psychiatry. Okay. Um, there's two ways of looking at why I became interested in psychiatry. One was that I grew up in a crazy family and I just didn't know the vocabulary or the diagnoses. And I got curious, which is part of it. Um, but the the other thing I think is that I I was always kind of a good listener and the person that people went to for advice and guidance. And when I was doing my rotations, the psychiatry attendings really took an interest. And it was, you know, there, I was thinking, like a lot of psychiatrists, thinking about pediatrics. For about 10 minutes, I thought about neurosurgery. <laughs> um, and then I found out what they really do. <laughs> and and I, so I, I said, you know what, this I'm really interested in the sort of the, the neurobiological aspects of the way the brain works. And I think it was at the, in, in, at the beginning of something called the decade of the brain, which was uh, <laughs> a while ago now. <laughs> and so, you know, this, the whole sort of psychodynamic psychoanalytic stuff was not going to be taking um, a front row in the same way, which I was very interested in. I was really interested in psychopharmacology and the way, you know, nerve pathways worked and, you know, all that. So I, I got in on a good, good place like that. And it turned out I trained in a, a hospital that no longer exists. <laughs> Me too. Do you, you do too? <laughs> yeah. My, my internship training, the hospital is, is no longer there. And where was that? <laughs> That's in uh, Jamaica Plains, Massachusetts. Lemuel oh. Shattuck Hospital closed down. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It was it was one of the only hospitals. Uh I think it was the only hospital in the state that had a locked TB ward um for 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 active TB patients. And it was a prison hospital too. So we had a, a prison floor where you you literally went through all the prison gates to get to the patients. It was an amazing teaching hospital. Oh my God. 
mine was not quite like that, but it was an amazing <laughs> teaching hospital. It was um, St. Vincent's Hospital in, in the West Village of Manhattan. I know St. Vincent's well. Yeah. yeah. I, w- I went to New York Medical College. So I, yeah. I had, I think, if I remember correctly, I had friends in residency there when it shut down and they're like, uh oh, <laughs> where yeah, do we oh, go yeah. from here? <laughs> yeah. We, we took a bunch of those residents here. Yeah. Uh, but it, it was a great learning experience. You know, I, I grew up in a really what you would consider a fairly small town, Buffalo, New York, and, you know, didn't have a whole lot of exposure to diversity. And boy, did I get a lot of exposure to diversity in the West Village. Yeah. And it was really a great learning experience. It was a lot of fun. It was, it, it was everything I'd hoped psychiatry would be. Um, the the downside of it was that it was at the peak of the HIV AIDS epidemic. And so a great percentage of our patients were, you know, sick and died. And we had to deal with that, which is another thing you have to learn quickly when you're in it. Um, but I had great supervision um, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. So I guess that's kind of the story. Yeah. Interesting. And then, yeah. and then this subspecialty, which is really interesting. I've heard some really interesting subspecialties of psychiatry. One, one other previous guest is a, like a perinatal psychi- uh, psychiatrist mm-hmm. and, and transplant psychiatry. I've never heard of until finding you and talking to you. How does one find transplant psychiatry? Well, when I found it, it wasn't really a thing. There were just like maybe six of us (laughs) around the country who worked with transplant teams. What got me interested in that was that I did a fellowship in addictions. And um, when I was in finishing the second year of my training, my program director got a letter from, you know, somebody in transplant, liver transplant saying, hey, we're transplanting a fair number of people with alcohol problems. Anybody in your fellowship interested? And it just so happened that my best friend and his, his dad, who was a teacher of mine, needed a liver transplant, and they weren't sure whether to go forward. And he called me and said, do you, uh, what do you know about this? And I said, nothing, but I can learn a lot now. <laughs> so I, I watched them do a bunch of surgeries, and I went out on an organ procurement, and I fell in love with the field. And I realized um, pretty quickly, actually, that, that psychiatry was a huge part of what they did but there were there was almost no research in that at the time, and I had to come up with a if I wanted to stay where I am at Penn, I had to write a grant. <laughs> it's sort of like you know if I want to keep going. And I when I looked through the literature, there was everything you can imagine on the survival statistics and the surgical outcomes of transplant medicine for people with alcohol use disorders, but there wasn't one paper on the treatment of alcohol use disorders. So that was my first grant. Wow. And that's how I got it. Yeah. And it so, just blew it. <laughs> kind of found you. That's very interesting. So six, yeah. when you started, is it a bigger field now? Oh yeah. 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 It's great. I mean, there are textbooks Yeah, actually. Good. And you know, when we meet, I belong So my, I have two subspecialties. One is the addictions and the other is consultation liaison psychiatry, CL psych. And that's, you know, basically general hospital psychiatry where you get the, privilege, and I really do see it that way, of being able to go around the hospital and meet patients from every single area um, in medicine with all kinds of illnesses. You learn something new every single day, and you work right next to these people who are on the cutting edge of their field, so you're really learning and participating. And so anyway, that's 
my second subspecialty and transplant psychiatry is a special interest group within it. Um, And now there are, you know, like lots and lots of people who are doing the work. Um, I run a fellowship for CL and I've recently been asked, you know, should I create a subspecialty subfellowship for transplant, which Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of doing. So. Consultation liaison psychiatry, just to take a small detour, that name has changed recently, hasn't it? Yeah, thank God. <laughs> what What was the previous name? Because I've had I've had two consultation liaison psychiatrists on previously, um, mm-hmm. and one used the old name, and then the next guest used the new name, and I was confused for a second. Uh, what was the name previously? Just as a reminder, psychosomatic medicine. Yes, yes, that is it. The thinking behind this um, was that it was going to convince other doctors, <laughs> you know, the mind and the body were connected. Yeah. And it, what it really did was it just made patients feel bad. <laughs> uh, you know, like I would not go into a patient's room, let's say, hey, can you go see this depressed guy? He just had a leg amputation. He had an AKA, go see him. And I'm here from psychosomatic medicine. And they're like, well, I'm not making this up. <laughs> so yeah. I learned right away that that's not what I'm going to call myself. Yeah. And then after years and years of arguing at all these meetings, they finally agreed to go back to the original name, which is CL Psych. There you go. All right. Good, good little detour there. Yeah. What are, what are some of the, uh, the biggest misconceptions or myths that you're dealing with day in and day out, specifically tailored to the, the transplant psychiatry? You mean with respect to being a psychiatrist or just, you know, well, yeah. So, so I think it's, it's interesting um, because usually I frame this question around myths or misconceptions that students have or, or residents, um, psychiatry residents before they're subspecializing. But because this is such a, a smaller niche within a niche, it's, it's almost like what are some of the biggest myths or misconceptions that physicians have about what you're doing as a transplant psychiatrist? Well, it just turns out I wrote a book chapter on that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think that probably the most important one is that our role is not to be like the Roman emperor. We don't go in and say, yes, transplant, no, don't transplant, because you can't read the fight. Exactly. The thumbs up, thumbs down. Thumbs. Yeah. Um, what we do is we try to find them a path toward transplant. So if I see a person with schizophrenia, or if I see a person with active alcohol use disorders, or bipolar disorder, and on and on and on, um, you know, if they're currently having problems in those areas, are they getting enough help? And if not, how do we get them that help before they die from their organ failure mm-hmm. so that they can get listed on t- in time? That's no small task, especially nowadays because it's so hard to find a psychiatrist. Um, and it's even harder uh, to find a therapist. And, and that's been coming anyway because of insurance and all those issues. So a, cu- a couple of years ago, I was able to convince the administration of the hospital that I needed to switch from my job as a part-time transplant psychiatrist to a full-time transplant psychiatrist so I could take care of my patients longitudinally. And I got to bring one of my fellows with me and hired her on as an attending. So I think we're probably the only program in the country that has two full-time psychiatry attendings and transplant. And that's all we do. So, so here's, here's a a counter argument you've probably heard before. Mm -hmm. 
Why, why do we need transplant psychiatry to get more people on the list? We have too many people on the list and not enough organs as it is. That's a good question. No <laughs> one's ever asked me that question. <laughs> Usually it's like, so what, what do they need you for? <laughs> How did you do this? Um, well, I, I guess I don't really see it that way. You know, I, I, I that's, think that's good. I would hope not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, people, everybody deserves a shot, I guess, is the way we look at it. You know, and I think if you try to bring in, uh, you know, what patients uh, might say, give back to society, you're going down a slippery slope, you shouldn't go. And if you're looking at this individual and just saying, can they take care of a liver or, or a heart or a kidney? Um, and, and will they come to appointments and will they get something out of it physically uh, and survive longer than they would otherwise, then, then why not? And, you know, again, from my perspective, I want to try to see what areas of psychiatric problems or emotional problems or even family problems might interfere with that process and try to shore that up, um, develop a treatment plan. So, yeah, I, I, I don't think of it as uh, <laughs> making the problem worse. Yeah. I, what are what are some of the the biggest traits necessary to to be a good transplant psychiatrist? Some personal qualities, personal traits. Good. Okay. Great questions. It's, you, it's good that you have this job. No question about. <laughs> Um, I, I think you have to know your medicine. Um, you know, you, you can't fake that. If you don't know enough about, you know, the, the overall effects of the liver on the body and the brain, um, you're just, no one's going to respect you. So you have to really love medicine and surgery, and you have to be willing to study those areas and ask the questions that help you to stay on top of it and even read other journals. Imagine that besides psych journal. Um, and, and I think you have to be really good about not being afraid to say, I don't know and ask questions like, you know, can you, I remember the day that I was like, what's a ruin? Why? why tell me what that is <laughs> drawing all this stuff from the procedures. And, you know, why is it called a tips? You know, the, and they were great at, allowing me to ask the questions and then teaching me what I needed to know. Um, and I think you have to be adventurous. You know, you, you can't worry about nine to five because transplant doesn't work that way. You know, if, if there's a case that needs to be seen and a decision has to be made within, you know, a few hours, you show up, you just do it. Um, and, and then you're part of a team that's doing the same thing and you're not alone, which is what I love about CL Psych anyway. Yeah. Um, so I, th I think you have to be flexible. Um, I think you have to be passionate um, and you have to be good with people because you're going to meet a lot of people who don't have a lot of patients. Uh, they're busy. A lot of them are surgeons. <laughs> <laughs> they want to know, tell me now, got to do this. Let's go. Yeah. And I don't blame them because they're, they really are busy. Their time is very valuable. So you have to take that into consideration, be able to communicate effectively and rapidly and not talk psychobabble. Yeah. So. It's it's interesting when you when you talk about needing to know that medicine and, and surgery side of it. 
it it's almost in my mind I go to well that's counterintuitive to what a maybe a psychiatrist wants to do with their career they don't want to know that they just want to have those conversations and know the brain chemistry and all of that stuff uh but it sounds like an amazing subspecialty for someone who loves organs and and the medicine side of it but doesn't want to be a transplant surgeon and doesn't want to deal with uh, the the medicine side of things day in and day out, but but still gets to keep their toes dipped in to that to that field. Well, and that's that's actually CL psychiatry in a nutshell. Um, everybody who does CL psych, from what I can tell, is very personable. Um, you know, has a good sense of humor because you need it because you see a lot of painful stuff. Um, really good at collaborating and getting support from one another and from our, our other colleagues. Um, and have a little bit of ADD. Like you got to be able to do about three or four things at once and that's okay. Yeah. And not like sit down. <laughs> I think for me, that was the main thing. Like even when I did like addictions research and when I started out, um, what I loved about that is that I wasn't sitting in an office talking to people all day long. I could never do that. Um, turns out that's what I'm doing now. But <laughs> <laughs> for the first 30 years of my career, no. Yeah. Um, what does a typical so, day look like for you? Now or before? Um, well, pre, I could pre COVID. Pre COVID. Um, so, like most days, I have outpatients scheduled who are, you know, either pre transplant, heart, lung, liver, kidney, or post transplant. And then during uh, the day uh, or, or in the afternoon, we would sometimes get consulted to see emergency consults. So, usually it would be like a liver transplant recipient who became delirious in the ICU. And you'd have to do the differential diagnosis and look at all the meds list and interactions and understand, you know, what's happening here, how much of this is liver disease, how much is iatrogenic, you know, blah, blah, blah. So all of that um, is, is part of what you do. Um, and, and you have to go to patient selection meetings, which is a lot of fun. You sit there with you know, 20 or 30 other people, all of different specialties and knowledge base, you know, everything from finance and nutrition and social work to the surgeons, to the, to the chief transplant surgeons, um, and, and listen to how they talk about decision-making for these cases, um, and then put your two cents in at the same time. So that takes up a number of hours. Um, you spend a fair bit of time talking to family members because you need collateral information, because a lot of times patients are a little too sick to give you a, a full or accurate history. Um, what else do we do? Mm, well, where I am, we do a lot of writing and teaching, because uh, that's just sort of what we do in, in our facility. And our, our transplant team has a huge reputation of doing that. And so they're supportive of our doing that, and they give us resources, yeah. which is great. That's good. You, you mentioned flexibility and needing to come in kind of at the drop of a hat. What, what does a, a typical call schedule look like, or is it just whenever you're needed? Yeah. Well, you know, there is no call for transplant psych. We're just, we just see ourselves as, you know, when you need us, we're there. And if, and because there are two of us where I am, we can spot one another. Um, when I was alone, it was a little difficult. You know, I'd be like hiking somewhere and <laughs> New Hampshire and get a call on my phone about somebody's something or other. And I'm like, I don't even know this patient. I'm hiking, you know, so you, you <laughs> but, 
but call you know in psychiatry is really not anywhere near as arduous as a lot of the other specialties uh, depending on the program that you're in it's easy for me to say now but the residents do work very very hard when they're on call yeah uh, and i give them a lot of credit and respect especially the ones who work in the crisis response centers or the emergency rooms i ran a psych er for 10 years um so i know what that's like what that life is like um and that's a whole that's a new field too actually that's a subspecialty field that's a lot of really fun i think hmm. um, if you're into that sort of thing yeah do you feel like there's uh, enough time for life outside of the hospital and and a normal kind of relationship in transplant psych if there's lots of calls of, of needing to go in at the drop of a hat yeah it's not it's not that bad um yeah. you know you it, it isn't that unusual if they call you and they give you a heads up, you know, so-and-so just came in, you know, these days we're actually transplanting people with um, alcohol associated hepatitis, basically acute alcoholic hepatitis who were drinking fairly recently. Mm. And these are people in their thirties and forties. So they're getting cirrhosis in their thirties now, um, partly due to the pandemic, I think. Um, But when they call you and they give you a heads up, you can sort of plan for it. All right. I need to be there for two hours, you know, how much time do I have? You can come tomorrow. Okay, great. I'll be there. You know, that, that kind of thing. Um, but I don't mind it, I guess, you know, it's when I went into medicine, I knew that a big part of the reason I went into it, um, wasn't really, uh, about me and it's about taking care of people and being there when you, when they need you. Um, William Osler, you know, to be uh, affable and available. And what's the other one? Affable, available, and something. <laughs> I can't remember. I don't remember. It'll, it'll come to me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but available is really the important one. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, it's interesting. So you are program director for consultation liaison psychiatry as a full-time transplant psychiatrist. From a a program director standpoint, what are you looking for in an applicant to to have them match? Obviously, um, in a competitive kind of landscape where you are, um, any any specialty is going to be competitive. What are you looking for in your residents or fellows specifically? So the the residents that apply, you know, they already know that they're interested in CL because they've had enough experience by their fourth year or even their third year to, to understand what that means. And, you know, there are people who just don't want to do that. It's just too overwhelming for them, or it's too, you know, like too many things going on at the same time and it's unpredictable. And, you know, you also don't have a lot of data to guide you for a lot of things. So you have to kind of come up with stuff that that's to me is the most intriguing thing. And the most fun part of it is solving the puzzles. so when, when I look for people, I really do look for people who are not afraid to work hard, who are flexible, and who can say, I don't know, uh, because you can't know it all. And you have to be able to know when you know something and know when you don't yeah. and get help in those areas. So, you know, and someone who can talk to somebody, I, I really think a, a CL psychiatrist who might be very shy um, or the opposite, too outgoing, you know, like turn people off, isn't going to work very well. 
Yeah. <laughs> You're a little too cheery for this specialty. Exactly. <laughs> that's not going to fly. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. For the osteopathic student listening to this, what do what do they have to do to overcome any potential negative bias to, to match into a competitive specialty? For psychiatry? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Competitive program, I should say. Yeah. Um, would you mind rephrasing the question? I'm not really sure I understand. So exactly. if, if, if a osteopathic medical student is listening to this or even a resident is, is listening to this and wants to go into uh, CL psychiatry at, at your program, do they need to do anything different to overcome any negative bias that may be out there to be competitive with their MD peers? Um, I think it depends on where you are. You know, as, as we were talking about a little bit before the interview, I was fortunate that my predecessor had set a great example for what CL psychiatry can be in the hospital and for 35 years. And so I didn't have to go proving that, you know, we are valuable, but a lot of, when I talk to a lot of my peers, uh, who work in other hospitals, the CL psychiatrists, um, people don't know what they do. They're not sure why they're there. They get, you know, they don't really get respected in the same way sometimes. I found that the way to do that is to really interject yourself into the care of the patient. Make rounds with that team. You know, teach them stuff. Say, I would like to give, do you, would you like an in-service on, you know, conversion disorder? And they jump at that stuff. So you make yourself known and you make yourself valuable and you show you know, what you can do to help people. And then things start turning around. But if you're sort of just, you know, kind of hit and run, you know, sort of the psychiatric equivalent of being a firefighter and just <laughs> put out the fire and get out, you, you probably won't get to know people and you, and they won't understand enough of what you do because we do do a lot of things. The joke is that we, you know, some people, yeah, it's a problem. If you don't know enough about something, we sort of have to know something about everything. <laughs> yeah. You know. <laughs> yep. What do you wish the primary care docs knew about what you're doing day in and day out as a transplant psychiatrist to help you do your job better and help the help the patients more? So I I think really those psychi those physicians who work with people with mental illnesses and addictions um need to help these patients understand very early that they have to take care of those things before it's too late from a transplant perspective. So, you know, if you, if you have somebody who is languishing and depressed and not doing well, and they need a heart transplant, um, if by the time they get to heart transplant, they're so sick and they haven't really been able to take care of themselves because they weren't able to get the right care for their depression early enough. It it's, you don't know whether or not you can actually make it better in time for them. So I would say, you know, keep an eye open for those kinds of illnesses that really do respond to treatment. Um, and, and in alcohol, I think that's probably the most important thing because a lot of these guys need to be sent to programs. They need to be told very directly, you cannot drink, it will kill you because they'll hear th something different. It's like, oh, cut back. That doesn't work. Um, get them into treatment because if they do those things before they come for a transplant evaluation, it is seen as a very positive thing. And 
it'll turn their lives around too. Yeah. And they need it. They need their wits about them. So. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into transplant psychiatry? <laughs> um, it's always changing. Um, I, I, th- I think, you know, it's, I'm not even sure actually <laughs> to, to really think about that one. Um, I guess I wish I had known earlier that the breadth of our abilities and what we, what's needed of us is much greater than I initially anticipated or even saw. Um, you know, there's, there's really so many areas we can help with, um, but you can't do everything and you have to kind of tailor your skills and also your time to, to what you can do. It's a sense of the triage actually. Um, so I, I guess what I'm saying is that if other people knew about this and could sort of spread the word that this is a great field, this is really interesting, it's always moving forward, um, you know, start thinking about it early. <laughs> yeah. Earlier. What do you like the most about it? Oh, boy. Um, I think it's working with teams. Um, I, I just love working with other specialists, you know, the, the cardiologists and the pulmonologists and the hepatologists and all the surgeons and the nurse coordinators and social workers, you know, everybody's got a different opinion. Everybody knows things that, the, that they can teach one another. Um, and I, lo- and I love the patients. Oh my God. They're so, <laughs> they're so great. They really are. I mean, these are folks who are in terrible shape. Some of them dying, some of them, and they, they really teach you about resilience and strength and what it means to face these illnesses um, with grace. And so I, I guess I, I love working with my patients and, and even and learning from them. That's the other thing is I'm always learning from them. I'll always ask them about their experience. You know, what was that like? And tell me what it felt like and what happens when that happens. You know, so I can understand what it means for somebody to have peritoneal dialysis at home. What's their life like? And they're so excited to teach you because doctors don't usually ask those kinds of questions. So I love all that. <laughs> what do you like the least? Um, I guess, you know, well, paperwork. I hate paperwork. <laughs> Shocker. Yeah, right. Just don't like it. Um, especially working in an academic medicine center, you know, you're always getting tons of things that you have to fill out and stay on top of and you just wonder why <laughs> so, that, that stuff bugs me but i'm i have to say i'm at a point in my career where a lot of the things that are difficult to deal with i don't really deal with them now um i don't actually take call <laughs> which is kind of amazing yeah um, do you see any changes major changes coming to the field of transplant psychiatry or, or maybe consultation liaison psychiatry more broadly that would potentially affect someone's decision to enter that field? Yeah, I, I do actually. When, when I started our fellowship, um, I think because of my experience as a subspecialist of psychiatry, um, I began to notice that other fields need really needed us like you know the we would get calls from the endocrinologist to help them with their diabetes patients or we would get calls from you know the orthopedists to 
help them, you know, with their patients who are older and depressed and had, you know, hip replacements and things like that and on and on. And I got the sense that what psychiatry was doing was going the way of all the other medicines, areas of medicine and developing subspecialties within the field. So that was how I designed our fellowship. So the most uh, fellowships are mostly like all inpatient on the wards, you know, the whole hospital. Um, ours is about 50% outpatient in, in six or seven subspecialties like anesthesia, pain, neurology, um, women's mental health, oncology. We even have GI psychiatry, believe it or not. Um, transplant, you know, on and on. So those, those are the subspecialty areas that my fellows are able to really dive into. And I think that's where it's going. I think people are going to have to have a niche within psychiatry that they can really call their own and distinguish themselves from others. And the, the knowledge that is required for, you know, so many different things in medicine really, that allows you to kind of master something a bit better. I yeah. And that's where it's going. Yeah. yeah. Sub, 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 sub specialties. Uh-huh. Right. Exactly. <laughs> the, the specialization of medicine. Yeah. I, I always joke. I'm like, I'm, I want to be the orthopod that only operates on the left hand pinky finger. Like that's right, right hand. <laughs> I can't do left hand. That's, that's mine. That's um, sometimes how I feel actually. <laughs> <laughs> if you had to do it all over again, would you, would you be a transplant psychiatrist? Absolutely. No hesitation. Yeah. It's, it's everything that I wanted and didn't know I wanted until, until I found myself there. Yeah. You know, sometimes you, you, you go with your gut, you know, it's like the Malcolm Gladwell book blink, you get all this experience and then you make a gut decision, which is based on all of that experience and knowledge. And if you follow it, you're probably going to be right. And you're probably going to be happy. And I kind of did that zigzaggy path to get from you know, general psychiatry to addictions to transplant based on that kind of, um, I guess, approach. Um, so yeah, I, w- I don't think I would trade it for the world. I mean, I, I'll never forget the, the biggest talk I ever had to give was in front of 3000 transplant surgeons at an American Association of Liver Diseases conference. And, I, and then my sister came to that talk, which is, is it was in Chicago. That's where she lives. And I'm, I'm looking at her and I'm like, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to pee in my pants. <laughs> how am I going to deal? You know, these huge jumbotron, you know, screens that are all over the place. And she goes, she looked at me, she goes, it's not about you. You're here to give these doctors an understanding about what the, your patients need and what their patients need and how they can help them and when to refer them to you. So it's really for them. You're their voice. And boy, did that work. Um, I calmed right down, you know, I, I got into it and, you know, that's a, that's a privilege really to be able to teach other doctors how to help patients in areas that they see all the time and are stymied, you know, what, what do you, how do you feel when your alcohol patient who got a liver transplant relapses, you get really angry at them. And if you get really angry at them in the office, does that make them better? Does that help them? No. So what do you do? So we talk about motivational enhancement therapy and all these other things. Um, yeah, I, I would, 
I wouldn't do anything else. This is, this is a lot of fun. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I, I was just teaching, I teach a course at, um, or part of a course at, uh, University of Colorado School of Medicine. It's a found, foundations of doctoring course communications. Uh, and so it's, it's small group. I'm one of the coaches for that small group with first and second year students. And, um, this, this last week it was, um, motivational interviewing and how, and how do you start that conversation with the patient about quitting smoking? How do you start the conversation about being more, uh, consistent with medication usage? I just, I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's, I mean, it really is, you know, having the tools that you need to actually make a difference and it feels good. It's a nice conversation as opposed to an interrogation. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and, you know, thank goodness we can learn that. We can, we can show other people how to do it um, and make the difficult conversations more likely to happen. That's really what you worry about is people avoiding these difficult conversations because they don't really know what to say. Yeah. You know, doctors are people too. <laughs> Any last words of wisdom for the student or resident listening to this going, wow, transplant psychiatry sounds kind of cool. I, I want to go check it out. It, it's going to be, um, I mean, from my perspective, people, medical students that I work with, you know, kind of rotate with me on the wards when I see patients. And they're pretty excited about it, but I have to sort of take them back a few steps and say, really, you know, you, you need to do a psychiatry residency <laughs> and psychiatry residencies now are really awesome. I, you know, I kind of wish I could do them again because the, the focus is, is on a really good balance of, of psychopharmacology and counseling um, and also self-care which is something that we didn't learn as doctors many years ago. You know, it's really interesting to see, you know, our, our chair, you know, tell our residents how to make sure that they're okay and that they're, you know, all the pain that they're facing and all of the things that they're hearing, um, they need to take care of themselves so they can take care of others. And we, we didn't have that. So that's something that is a huge advantage now going into psychiatry. And I, I, as far as I know, the, a lot of the programs are really filling now. So people do really well. I mean, you don't, you, you get paid okay. Um, you're not going to be rich, um, but you'll be comfortable. And if you love what you do, it, it's fine. Um, so it's not like something you go into for the money, basically. But not too many doctors do that anyway. <laughs> All right. There you have it. Again, Dr. Robert Weinrieb a transplant psychiatrist talking about his role in the world of transplant. A very, very interesting niche within the psychiatry world. That's why I love doing this specific podcast where I get to interview physicians who have really found a niche that fits them and fits their what their passions around what they like to talk about, fits kind of their just their life. And this is no different with Dr. Robert Weinrieb. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you are looking more for psychiatry, I have had several consultation liaison psychiatrists on previously. So go check those out. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. Mm -hmm.